Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 4. You say, but preacher, you're doing a series out of Acts. Well, I know. I'm going to read one verse in Acts chapter 4, and then we're going to go to James chapter 4. There's a pattern, a reoccurring pattern that we see in the book of Acts, and it is the importance of prayer in this newly established, spirit-empowered church. In Acts chapter 4, we're told that when these new Christians were faced with threatening circumstances, that the church was moved to desperate prayer. And amazing things happen when God's people pray. Acts chapter 4 verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And I believe physically it was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Church, I remind you, great things happen when God's people pray. I want to say it again so you can say amen. Great things happen when God's people pray. And today I want to stay in that same vein of thought, but also see what another New Testament writer has to teach the church about prayer. James is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, but he is a man who knew something of prayer. In fact, when they were preparing his body for burial, they gave him the nickname, okay, after he was dead, he got the nickname Camel Knees because he had developed hard calluses on his knees after spending hours of time in prayer to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not only was he the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, but here in James chapter 4, he's writing to believers who came from a Jewish background and were scattered all over that part of the world. He's really concerned about the vitality of their faith. He's also concerned about the dangers of hypocrisy. And most importantly, he is concerned about the poison of worldliness that can seep into the lives of Christians and the church. And let me tell you, when that happens, when worldliness seeps into our church, it always manifests itself through our selfishness. And he writes about that here in James chapter 4. Let me pick up in verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Some translations use the phrase, where do fights and quarrels come from? How many of you have been in a good fight this past week? A quarrel? Oh, you're just not raising your hands because most of you had one right before you came to church. His next question is, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us 
yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. <laughs> Amen. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Lord, we humble ourselves before you today, and we ask for grace. Indeed, Lord, we ask for more grace. I pray that the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God, would diagnose our hearts today and show us how we truly are. And then, dear Lord, I pray that you would prescribe the remedy, that you would give us the answer to our own selfishness, prayerlessness, and worldliness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I think there's just something inside of our depraved human nature that causes us to fight and to quarrel and to argue. Let me tell you a few stories I just recently read about. The first is about a little town outside of uh, in Tennessee. It's called Athens, Tennessee. It seems there were two men driving outside of Athens down the road, and they ran out of gas. And so both men got out of the car, and they started walking back to the gas station. But along the way, they got into an argument. It was a quarrel over who should have to pay for the gas at the pump. Uh, the argument became so heated that they got into a terrible fight and one of them stabbed the other with a pocket knife. And they were both thrown into the Athens jail. I read another story about a, a young couple in Colorado who got into a domestic fight over which gang their son should join. Now, granted, their boy was only four years old. <laughs> But his unmarried parents belonged to different rival gangs. And the dad wanted his young boy to follow in his steps and join his gang. However, the mother wanted the son to belong to the gang that she was associated with because the leader of that gang had written a children's book right before he was executed from prison. Well, the husband's you stewed over it for quite some time and finally he decided to storm into the store where his girlfriend worked he flew into a rage knocked over displays sent a computer crashing to the floor and verbally threatened to kill his girlfriend he was thrown in jail i know these stories are getting to you aren't they there was another story out of california about two vagrants who got into a fight over their empty beer cans they both wanted to take their empty beer cans to the recyclable center to get a little bit of spending money. Now one is in the hospital with multiple stab wounds and the other is in prison. Tennessee, Colorado, California. Oh yeah, Fort Smith. Over the weekend, two men down on Garrison Avenue got into an argument. Uh, the newspaper didn't say what they were arguing about, but they did stab each other. The police came. They shackled both men, took them to separate hospitals, one St. Ed Mercy's, the other is it was taken to Spark, and then uh, after they were treated, they were both thrown in jail. <laughs> now, why am I telling you those stories? Well, every day we can find stories like these. And you know what? In an odd kind of way I think we can all relate to these stories in a strange odd kind of way huh? sometimes the smallest things 
can tick us off and set off our temper. Now, my wife and I don't make it a practice to fight and argue and quarrel. We have had a few through the years. We don't have them nearly as much these days because I finally figured out if we do have one, it's always my fault. <laughs> sometimes, now sometimes, I, I'm going to step over here when I say this. Sometimes I just, I just try to provoke my wife just to see if she still has that fiery temper she had when I first married her. I know that's not right, but sometimes I, I just want to make sure that, that that fire is still there. I did tell you about the first fight Miss Angie and I had, did I? It, ha <laughs> it was 33 years ago, but I do remember it like it was yesterday. Right? We, we were freshly married. Be quiet, lady. Hey, hey, hush. This is my story. You, you be quiet. We'd just gotten married, lived in Enid, Oklahoma. I was the youth pastor of the church. Angie had fixed a tremendous meal that night. We were sitting in front of our little 19-inch black and white TV, <laughs> having our great meal. And during the middle of the meal, I ran out of tea. And so I just did what my dad had always done when he ran out of tea. And that's just rattled the, the glass of ice. It was an indication for my mama to get up and get him some more tea. <laughs> Miss Angie said, what is that? What, what is that? I said, well, I need more tea. This is the way my daddy used to get tea from my mama. Miss Angie got up, filled the glass up with tea, and then I wore it. There, there's one psychologist and marriage counselor who calls these things tremendous trifles. Did you get that? Tremendous trifles. He says that many times our arguments are touched off by minor things. I would have to say amen to that. Like a tube of toothpaste or a towel on the floor or the toilet seat. Or some kind of minor misunderstanding. But he said these little incidents are like pricking a balloon. Because he said we're all filled with hot air. A certain amount of selfishness or anger or resentment or fatigue or antagonism. And when the right pinprick pops us, it unleashes all of these emotions. And these emotions can cause collateral damage. I dare to say that there are some people in this room today who have had a terrible argument recently. Maybe it was with a loved one or with somebody at work or, or maybe at school or even here at church. It wasn't really about anything big at all. In fact, you may not even remember what the argument was about. A small issue. But it tapped into something much deeper than that. Well, James is concerned about this in James chapter 4. He is concerned with our quarreling and our conflict that, that even goes on amongst believers and family members. And what causes us to act that way? You know, I really got to believe looking around at our world today, 
quarreling and arguing are ingrained in our culture. And it's really deep. But if we're wise, we will allow God's word to diagnose our problems and also show us how to correct our behavior. Now, when I get sick, I go to the doctor. And I want him to diagnose my problem. I want him to tell me what's wrong with me. Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? But not only that, prescribe something to help me get better. Boy, you're in luck today. Because that's what God's word is going to do to us. Because whether you know it or not, you're sick. And you need to be properly diagnosed. God's word is going to do that and also show you how you can correct the problem. So what does the Bible say is at the root of all of our quarreling and fighting that goes on in our homes, in our world, and even in our church? Well, folks, it all starts with selfishness. That's where it starts. That's where it comes from, selfishness. James 4, 1 and 2 paints a pretty ugly picture of what selfishness can do to relationships. He says in verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? I really like the way NIV reads. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So the fights and the quarrels among us come from the desires that are inside of us. These desires are sinful, selfish passions for pleasure. And these desires create an inner battle that rages inside of our hearts. Now, let me tell you this. When we're saved, our flesh, that is, that old sin nature, is not eradicated. We've still got to deal with the old man. We've still got to deal with our flesh. It's still a part of the bodies that we inhabit. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that the spirit wars against the flesh. And the flesh wars against the spirit. And because there is this inner turmoil in our lives, we find ourselves fighting and arguing and quarreling, sometimes even with the people we say we love. Verse 2 goes on to say, You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. This internal battle creates restless frustrations. When it says you lust and do not have, again, it is describing sinful, evil desires. And this is what causes people to kill other people. It's what causes us to covet what other people have. Now, James probably doesn't mean physical murder here, but he is talking about that intense hatred that we can have towards another person that will cause us to murder them. Then he talks about coveting. Coveting means to set your heart on something that belongs to what somebody else has. And when those cravings go unmet, the result is quarreling and fighting. Quarrels are ongoing disputes. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys. <laughs> All right? It's an ongoing thing. Fights, on the other hand, are outbursts of antagonism when things get really bad. We quarrel, 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 finally we fight. And it's never good. And what is feeding all of this quarreling and fighting 
is our own selfishness. Now you think about that. Think about all the arguments that you've had with family members, that you've had with your spouse, that you've had with other people. Really, when you get everything else out of the way, it comes down to selfishness. Because Jesus doesn't fight with Jesus. And if you're arguing with your spouse and that person is a Christian, you know what? You're involved somehow, some way, and it's selfish. People thinking only about themselves. People wanting to be served rather than serving others. Wanting to control rather than to love. And so he says, problem number one, you're selfish. You're selfish. James continues the diagnosis of the situation with these believers when he says, selfishness leads to prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Verse 2b, you do not have because you do not ask God. Now here's the deal, when you are full of yourself and your little world is revolving around you, it's really difficult for you to pray, okay, do you get that? Because when you pray, you've got to humble yourself, you've got to kneel not only a knee, but your heart towards God, and selfish people have a hard time doing that. Either it's because you're too self-confident in yourself, thinking, you know what, I can fix this problem. I can handle this. I don't need God. I don't need to ask God for help. I can, I can do this. No, you can't. Yeah. Or it's because of so much sin in your life that you have blocked your communication between you and God. But the bottom line is you can't pray. Selfishness is the root of prayerlessness. If you can't pray, it's because you've got a self-problem. Now, some of you might say, well, preacher, you're wrong. I do pray. I pray every day. Well, maybe you say words, <laughs> but are you really praying? Why do I ask that? Because of what verse 3 says. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. So your praying is so riddled with selfishness that you ask for things, but you're asking only for yourself to make you feel better. It's not to serve God or to serve other people. There's no true surrender in this kind of praying. It's a selfish kind of praying. God bless me, myself, and I. We forget about Psalm 37, 4 which says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? Well, it means you've taken your eyes off of yourself, and you've placed your eyes on God. You're not selfish any longer. You've humbled yourself before God. You're worshiping him. And when we fix our focus on him, he does give us the desires of our heart, because our desires are going to be his desires. I wonder how many blessings of God are we missing out on because we haven't earnestly prayed about what we need. Oh, we may shoot out a little arrow prayer, but we don't spend time on our knees fervently seeking God or maybe even fasting to clear our spiritual eyes to see His will better. How many blessings of God are we missing out on because we're not totally committed to God's will when we ask? Oh, we want what we want. Not what God wants. May my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not how that prayer goes, guys. You're asking him, 
may your will, may God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Maybe we haven't brought ourselves to the point where we can pray like Jesus when Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but thine be done. The needs in our lives and in our families and in our world should drive us to prayer. Guys, I'm telling you, just turn on the TV. Watch, watch, the, watch what comes on this evening. You'll be driven to prayer. I don't know if you got that or not, but anyway. Look around at your family and the needs in your family. It should drive you to your knees in prayer. Look at your own life. Man, it should drive you to your knees in prayer. For example, when we need wisdom, rather than worrying and fretting, or worse, taking matters into our own hands, what should we do? When we need wisdom, what should we do? Well, just go back a couple of chapters. James tells us what to do. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, he says, just ask God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. So what do we do when we need wisdom? We get on our knees before God. We humble our heart and say, God, I can't fix this. I need help. Lord, please give me wisdom. Then at the end of James, he teaches us something else about prayer. You need to read this. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is there anyone among you suffering? If so, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, let that person sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You see, when we have needs and we feel that selfish stirring within us, we need to turn to God in prayer. We don't need to get prideful and egotistical and arrogant and think we can handle it on our own. No, we need to bow a knee. We need to ask God for help. So the Bible says that selfishness comes from prayerlessness and then the root of prayerlessness is number three, worldliness. Worldliness. Verse four, adulterers and adulteresses. Boy, I tell you, that kind of smacks you in the face, doesn't it? He's calling the, the Christians adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And listen to me, guys. this is not just Pastor Will preaching hard to you. This is the diagnosis of the Word of God and the Spirit of God on the church of Jesus Christ today. We will never grow in our walk with God until we humbly accept His diagnosis of our life and our church. And here's what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that at the root of our selfishness, is prayerlessness and at the root of our prayerlessness is worldliness James says 
you're an adulterer. That gets your attention, doesn't it? He says, you've committed your life to God, but you're not faithful to Him. You're committing spiritual adultery because you love someone else. You're giving your affection to somebody else. And who is that somebody else? It's the world. At the root of our prayerlessness is the fact that we just don't love God as much as we think we love God or as much as we say we do. The world, James is referring to here, means the priorities and the pleasures and the principles of the culture that surrounds us. When we're worldly, we live as though this present world is the only thing that really matters. Eternal things are not as important to us as the things of this world. And so we start thinking like the world. We start talking like the world. And we start acting like the world. James is pretty blunt here. Here's what he's saying. To be a friend of the world means that you're an enemy of God. If you love this world, you don't love God. To love the world is to hate God. And we might say, oh no, that, that's not it at all. But the Holy Spirit says, yes it is. That's the accurate, true diagnosis of your life. Our prayerlessness reveals that we really don't love God as much as we think we love God, or as much as we say we do. And if that weren't enough, he, he's got to give us the next verse, verse number five. Look at this. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now I want to tell you something. Jealousy is not always bad. We usually think of jealousy as being a bad emotion, a bad feeling. It's not always bad. Sometimes it's pretty good to be jealous. Gordon Clayton, a sociologist who has studied the subject a long time, explained jealousy is protection for love, a reaction to a perceived threat to a valued relationship. Now let me explain it like this. Something is Something is desperately wrong in a relationship with a husband and wife if that husband sees his wife committing adultery with another man and he's not jealous about it. There is something really wrong in a relationship if a wife is watching her husband flirt with another woman and she doesn't get mad dog jealous. Likewise, something would be desperately wrong with God's love if he watched the world seduce his people without divine jealousy. J James is talking about that in verse 5. In fact, I think James, without quoting a specific verse, is thinking about Old Testament Israel and the many times they left the love of God. And they committed spiritual adultery with the pagan nations of the world. And that's exactly what they did. Church, I'm here to tell you the third person of the triune God indwells every believer. His name is the Holy Spirit. And when you are saved, God places His Spirit in your life. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit does not intend to share his living quarters 
with competing affections. He feels divine jealousy when believers give their affection to this world. So jealousy is not always bad. God is jealous for you. Now, I know this has been heavy and I've been preaching hard, but you know what? I want to end with the way James ends it here. Some pretty good news. You like good news? Here's some good news right here. While we don't think we could ever change our selfishness, our prayerlessness, and our worldliness, the good news is God can. God can change that. He can change it by His grace. Thank God for verse number 6. It says, but He gives more grace. Woo! Hallelujah! I thank God for grace, but I thank Him more for more grace. <laughs> because that's what I need. I need the more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We need God's grace. You need God's grace in your life. You need God's grace to overcome. Now, grace to me is like water. It flows to the lowest point. You got that? You got a visual in your mind? I, my house is on kind of a side of a hill, a slope, and and I've got some low places in my yard, that water always goes to those low places, and it, it follows that track of the lowest spot. That's the way, that's the way water does, and, and that's the way grace is. Grace like water flows to the lowest point. And, and if we keep ourselves elevated in, in prideful sinfulness, we will never see the waters of God's grace. If we elevate ourselves in our own pride and sinfulness, we'll never get to wade in the waters of God's grace because grace flows to the lowest point. And if you want to get in on the grace of God, you need to lower yourself in humility. You need to humble yourself. Humility allows us to be honest before God and confess our sinfulness. Humility drives us to cry out to God in prayer rather than to be grabbing for our own desires and needs. Humility causes us to bow before the God of the universe, not the false gods of this world. You need grace. You need more grace. And God gives grace to the humble. Listen to me. Grace will make us selfless, not selfish. Grace will make us prayerful, not prayerless. Grace will make us godly, not worldly. Standing in the light of the truth of God's word is where we are today. God's word has spoken to us. It has diagnosed our problem. What's our problem? Selfishness. We're selfish. Prayerlessness, because of that selfishness, we're not praying. And because our hearts are affected by the world and our affection is on the world, we are selfish and we are prayerless. That's God's diagnosis of your life. You're selfish, you're prayerless, and you're worldly. His remedy? Come to Him. You humble yourself before Him. You get down on your knees before God. You humble your heart before God. And in that humility, you will find His grace.
And what comes with grace? Forgiveness. So will you humble yourself today and receive more grace? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts as only you can. Lord, there's a person in this room who's never accepted Jesus as their Savior. They've never confessed you as Lord of their life. They've never confessed their sins before you and asked you to save them. I pray that that person would come today and find grace and forgiveness. Lord, for those Christians here today who who are affected by selfishness and prayerlessness and worldliness, may we come and humble our lives before you. May we find more grace at the altar today. Lord, for the rest who just need to come and pray, maybe, maybe they're coming and praying for a family member or for a situation at home or at work. Maybe, maybe they're coming, dear Lord, to pray for this country and America. Lord, help us to do that today. We know that great things happen when God's people pray. And so I pray, dear Lord, that as we humble ourselves and pray this morning, that this place would be shaken and we would be filled with boldness to speak your word. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? Praise team is going to sing. I invite you to come this morning and pray. If it's